open to Hebrews 10, and if you've been here in recent weeks, you know that we've been making our way through the book of Hebrews, and there's this theme that we keep seeing come up over and over again in Hebrews, and it's that, that Jesus is better, right? We know that, that Jesus is better than the angels. We, we spent an entire study talking about that, that Jesus uh, is better than Moses, and in my mind, I've even, I've even been using the word superior in place of the word better. Right? Jesus is better. He's superior to Aaron in the priesthood. Right? Jesus is superior to Melchizedek, the high priest. Right? We've seen that, that Jesus is our rest. We spent a, a study talking about Sabbath rest. Right? And Jesus is our rest. We've seen that, that Jesus has mediated a superior covenant, the second covenant. We're going to talk a little about that tonight. But he's mediated a superior covenant, and, and one of the ways he's done that is by being a superior sacrifice. Right? We spent last week talking a little bit about the sacrificial system. It's kind of come into to several weeks, actually. And we see that, that Jesus is the superior sacrifice. And in all of that, we're warned a couple of times in the book of Hebrews, one of those is going to be tonight, against apostasy, right? Big word, but we're warned against rejecting the truth of God, rejecting the message of the gospel, rejecting the superiority of Jesus. And so in all of this, the writer of Hebrews, like if you take the book as a whole, you can just see the writer screaming out, that Jesus is superior in everything. There's nothing in life where Jesus isn't superior. And if we believe that to be true, it begs a question. Why would we chase or pursue anything else? If we, re if we really do believe that Jesus is superior. If we're buying into all of the stuff that we've been talking about in Hebrews. If you've been here week after week after week after week. Right? And you leave from here week after week thinking, yeah, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. If you believe that, if you've bought into that, why in the world would we chase anything else? Why in the world would we try to put something else as superior to Jesus? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. And, and so where we're coming to in Hebrews 10 is this, this dividing line of the gospel, right? The, the message of the gospel, at some point in the message, there's a line in the sand. And, and there's a call to be on this side of the line or that side of the line. Not to straddle it and try to be on both sides simultaneously. And I think we, we try to do a pretty good job of that, don't we? But, but the call that we see in Scripture is clearly be on this side of the line or be on that side of the line. And that's, that's the dividing line of the gospel. And that's where we're going to get to tonight as we make our way through Hebrews chapter 10. So if you're there, let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Probably don't need to explain that one a whole lot, right? There's some clarity there. Verse 2, otherwise, why would they have 
Why would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And we'll pause right there for just a moment. Right? Not a lot of ambiguity in what the writer is saying there. He's talking about the, the difference between the shadow and the substance. Right? And, and our, our bent, our propensity to chase after the shadow rather than the substance. Right? And we see all throughout the Old Testament, and we're, we're going we're to go New Testament here in a little bit, but we see all throughout the Old Testament, right, in the, the sacrificial system, the Israelites chasing after the shadow, chasing after the law, trying to gain their righteousness from the things that they do. Trying to gain their righteousness from just one more sacrifice, right? But here's the thing, and we'll see it clear tonight. The sacrifices for sin never end if it's, if it's up to us, right? If it's on us, it's a continual thing because we continually sin. So we see this, this law, the law that, that, that God brings us simply is a reminder of our sin, Right? And, and if, you, if you're like me, like, it seems like more and more I'm coming to the realization that I need to be reminded that I'm a sinner. Sometimes I forget that. Right? Sometimes I, I think I'm pretty good. I need to be reminded that I'm a sinner. I need to be reminded that my quote-unquote righteousness, it's not there. It's non-existent in and of myself. So the law as we chase after this shadow the power in the law is, is that it makes us aware of our sin. But the law condemns and the law does not <clears throat> free us from our sin. And so when we look to the law as our hope, when we look to our law, to the law as our remedy for sin, when we look to the things that we do to gain righteousness, the, the Bible would say that it's an exercise in futility. Because we're, we're not going to gain righteousness we're not going to do it. The, the blood of bulls and goats, it doesn't work permanently. They go on to say in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And we'll pause there for a moment. The writer's pulling from Psalm 40, right? And this is David speaking of, of Jesus. And this one thing I wanted to, to point out in this, right? We see David talking about sacrifices and offerings and those things not being the thing that God desires. But he says, a body you have prepared for me. If you actually turn to Psalm 40 in your Bible, you don't have to, but if you were to turn there and read it, you would see your translation say something along the lines of, you have, you've given me an ear to hear. Or something like that. And in the original language, what that's saying is you've dug out an ear. You've created an ear. And so in Hebrews, the, the writer says that you've prepared a body. Right? And this is pointing to Jesus. You've prepared a physical body for God to become man. For God to step in to humanity. Because there's no pleasure on the part of God in 
the sin offerings or the burnt offerings or those kinds of things. And so he's prepared a body, prepared, had a plan for Jesus to step in to mankind. And he says, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And that, and that points to something for us. It points to the fact that, that God has a plan of redemption. And not only does God have a plan, but God has a plan that, that is unfolding, and God has a plan that has been unfolding from the beginning. Right? God's plan of redemption, it's not a reaction to, oh man, they sinned in the garden, I didn't see that one coming, I gotta, I, uh, we got to re readjust. No. God's had this plan of redemption that is and has been unfolding from the beginning. He goes on to say in verse 8, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order in order to establish the second. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, I should have said this in the beginning, but we're, we're going to, there's a lot here that we could get into, and nobody probably wants to spend three or four hours here unpacking this, and so we're going we're gonna to be looking at kind of a zoomed out view of this tonight, rather than unpacking every single little thing, right? And so I just wanted to let you guys know that, that, that we're just going to take a big view of this chapter and, and what's there, right? But, but, but in this, we see that, that God... God's desire is that he would know us. God's desire is that he would know us. And, and so he's made this plan of redemption, put it into practice, made it available so that we could know him. So Jesus could step into humanity, live as a man, live a life that you and I, on our best day, couldn't live. And suffer the punishment that, that you and I, on our best day, should suffer. So that... We could know him. Hosea chapter 6 says this. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. It says, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. Knowledge rather than burnt offerings. Uh, knowledge that that's talking about is not, not a head knowledge, not a mental ascent. Right? That knowledge that's being spoken of is knowing God. Not knowing of God. Not knowing about God. Knowing who God is, but knowing God. And I'll tell you, there's a difference. There's a difference between knowing of God and knowing God. And part of this shadow that we chase oftentimes is knowing of God. Knowing about God. We chase the shadow and we miss out on the substance of knowing God. God. And we'll see as we continue through the chapter that, that that really doesn't get us anywhere. It's to our detriment that we do that. But think about this as the, the writer of Hebrews is writing this. Like, who is it that he's talking to? Right? He's talking about covenants, he's talking about sacrifices, he's talking about sanctification, he's talking about the blood of bulls and goats. Right? Who, who is he talking to? He's talking to the religious crowd. Right? He's talking to us. 
right? These things are not pointed at the people out there necessarily. Right? He's speaking to us, the religious crowd, the people that show up on a Wednesday night, the people that show up on a Sunday morning, right? The people that show up to home groups, to core groups, to work parties, those kinds of things. And he's telling us that it's impossible for the law to be a remedy to sin. You're showing up, you're participating. You should show up, you should participate, but it doesn't make you righteous. It does nothing as far as being a remedy for your sin. You show up all you want, participate all you want. It's not going to be a remedy for your sin. And if it could, if it could be a remedy for sin, what are, what are we doing? If we, if we could remedy our own sin, what's the point of all of this? Not much point in it, I don't think. Think about this, when Jesus spoke to the religious crowds, like some of the harshest words that Jesus had in the gospel accounts were, to the religious crowds. Some of the harshest things he spoke may have been aimed at you and me. Right in Matthew chapter 7, the people came to Jesus and he, and he says this, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is talking to the people that show up at church. God, I taught Sunday school. God, I was in a, I was in a core group for 10 years. I went and prayed with people in the hospital. I helped people move. I did those things, God, because I, because I love you. I'm trying to get your, your favor, trying to earn some points. I did anything they asked me to. Right? And what does he say? I don't even know who you are. That's kind of harsh. That's harsh. We read some of those things and we don't think, hey, maybe that's directed at me. Right? But, but those words of Jesus and these words that we read in Hebrews, they're directed at the Wednesday night crowd. And that's, that's you and I. And, and, and so in all of this, the thing that, that we can see is that our works of righteousness, whether it be in the Old Testament sacrificial system or whether it be in 2013, I'm going to show up every time the church doors are open, not a remedy for our sin. And not only are they not a remedy for our sin, but they don't cause us to be righteous either. I'm not, like I don't want to be a big bummer tonight, but that's, that's a weighty thing to think about. It's a heavy thing to think about. And I don't know what you guys are thinking right now, but for me, like today, the thought that's been going through my mind is, how much of the shadow do I chase versus the substance? I've been thinking about that quite a bit today. It's actually been a little bit distracting from putting together my notes. Like, man, I, 
I chase a lot of shadows, and you probably chase a lot of shadows. And we miss out in doing so on the substance. But there, there's some good news coming, so we can look forward to that. All right, but as we keep reading in verse 11, it says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we'll stop there for a moment. We have these contrasting pictures of the priest who stands and and Christ who sits. Two things that, that we see there, right? The priest that stands, his, his duty never ends. It says that the priest stands daily, offering repeatedly for the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, right? That's a never-ending duty. If, if, if our endeavor is to atone for our sins by the things that we do, it's a never-ending duty. Right? An exercise in futility it never, ever, ever ends. So this picture of the standing priest screams out to us, I can't, I can't do it. I can't make myself righteous. You can't make me righteous, and I can't make you righteous, and you can't make yourself righteous. And then we have this picture of Jesus sitting Right, and that, that picture shows us, like, what do you do at the end of a long work day? You come home and you sit down. Right? There's nothing greater than at the end of a day to come home and just, like, sit in your chair. Maybe one thing would be greater is if someone brings you an iced tea when you sit in your chair. But you, you get the picture, right? You, you sit down when your work is finished. Right? And we see this picture of Jesus sitting down because... His work has been finished. He is the superior sacrifice once for all. Right? We're going to hear that come up a couple of times. Right? But a single offering, it says, through a single offering, he has perfected those for all time who are being sanctified. For all time, past, present, future. Jesus wants for all sacrifice, right? So, so this contrast of the standing priest and, and the sitting Christ is a stark contrast. And part of our chasing of that substance is that we play the role of the standing priest. Just need to go to church more. Just need to watch my language. I need to be nicer to the people that I work with. I need to be a better dad. I need to be a better husband, right? Where that standing priest continually in a cycle that, that is never going to end. And so Jesus being the, the once for all sacrifice in order that we might be sanctified, another big word, but in, that we might be made holy. We might have this journey of sanctification, this process of sanctification 
it begins from the, from the moment that we come to faith in Christ and it ends when we, when we draw our last breath and enter into eternity. Right? Jesus, the once for all sacrifice so that we can embark on this, this journey of sanctification. We're leading up to this, this second and better covenant that the writer speaks about. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31 says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I have made with their families on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How many times in there do you hear you? It's not there. Repeatedly we hear God saying, I, I will do this. I will do this. I'll do that. Right? In his role as husband, we are the bride of Christ, the Bible tells us. In his role as husband to an ever unfaithful bride, Jesus says, I will make a new covenant with you even though you broke the last one. Right? In his role of righteous judge, he says, I'm going to put your law, my law, inside of you. Right? In his role as creator, he says, I've made a way for you to know me. I'll be your God and you can be my people. In his grace, he says, I'm going to be sin. So you can be righteous. Pretty amazing, isn't it? This is this covenant that, that is being spoken of in, in Hebrews. Not, not the old covenant that the people of Israel, who really are a representation of you and I, not the covenant that they broke in their unfaithfulness, not that covenant, but the new covenant where Jesus not only authors the covenant, but he fulfills it in every way. And you and I simply get to benefit from that. It's amazing when you think about it. Absolutely amazing. In the Old Testament, there's a picture of this covenant in the story of Hosea. And maybe you guys are familiar with the story of Hosea. For, for me, it's one of, <clears throat> one of the most beautiful things in all of Scripture, this story. And if you don't know it, God tells Hosea to go marry a woman who will be unfaithful. Like he tells him ahead of time. I want you to marry this woman and just know she's going to be unfaithful. Not once, but a whole bunch. Right? The book of Hosea even goes as far to, to use the harsh language of calling her a whore. And God tells Hosea, go marry, go marry this woman. And Hosea does it. He does it. And they have some children in. A couple of the children, one of them, God says, name, name that one, no mercy. And the next one, name the next one, not my people. So here you've got this family, right, who, who the wife 
God tells him she, she's a whore, she will be a whore, and your two kids, they're, they're going to be no mercy and not my people. Right? Imagine that family. A lot of dysfunction, you might say. But here's the thing. A story in there, and, and it goes on and it's a beautiful story, and we'll, we'll unpack that, but a story is a picture like we can, we can look at Hosea and we can think, ah, Hosea, man, what a, what a good guy, right? To be obedient to God. And man, he, he did these hard things and had this wife who was unfaithful and, you know, whatever. It's not the point of the story. And the point of the story is that I'm the unfaithful wife to God. You are the unfaithful wife to God. That's the point of the story. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. That might be a bit to take in. But the story goes on in chapter 2. I'll just read it. You can just listen. It says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will say, I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So lots of things we could talk about there, but just this beautiful, beautiful passage of God's plan of redemption seen in the life of Hosea and his unfaithful wife and, and his children. And we miss the substance when we don't read that story and say, I'm the unfaithful wife. I'm the one who's not been shown mercy because I wasn't God's people. And so as we look at this second and better covenant being spoken of in, in Hebrews, we see glimpses of this, pictures of this in the Old Testament. Right? We see a, a picture of this covenant as we read in Jeremiah, and we see a picture of this covenant as we just read in Hosea. I'll betroth the unfaithful wife, and I'm going to show mercy to no mercy, and I'm going to make not my people into my people, and I'm going to be their God. Again, how many times do we see the word you in there? We don't. And the story goes on in this beautiful picture where God tells Hosea to go purchase his wife out of a life of prostitution. And here's the thing, they're already married. She's already his. Rightfully his. And God tells him to go buy her back at a significant cost. Buy her back, even though she's mistreated you, even though she's shamed you, even though she's been unfaithful to you. 
Go buy her back and use your own money to buy her back. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. Right? As created beings, right? We already belong to the creator. Right? In Genesis, we read that, that God formed us in his image, in his likeness, and that God put breath in our lungs. And that God gave us the ability to work. God created us. And just like the story of Hosea, it, it really chronicles humankind, mankind, right? In our unfaithfulness to God, in our lives of, of whoredom and unfaithfulness to him. And, and God, even though he created us, bought us back at a great price, even though we really were already his to begin with. Are you getting a picture of grace in this? just blows me away. And in that picture, we can easily look at that and say, wow, that's far superior to the first covenant of, okay, I sinned, now I have to go sacrifice an animal. Far superior. So where, so where does that leave us, right? Where does that leave us if, if all of that's true, Right? And, and I believe that it absolutely is true. Right? The writer of Hebrews has spent these first number of verses, and let's actually just pick up in verse 15 where we left off. It says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Right? These first 18 verses, what's really being gotten at here is, is the truth of the gospel. Right? I don't know if you see it, but, but it's the gospel right here in Hebrews 10. Right? There's shadows that we chase, but there's a substance out here, and that substance is Christ. And by chasing the shadows, there's no remedy for sin. The only remedy for sin is that, that we rest in God, that we rest in Jesus. But we're prone to chase the shadows and to continually go back and chase the shadows. And God in his grace has put together a covenant that really is just one-sided. He says, you know what? I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to put your law, my law in your hearts. I'm going to show you mercy when you don't deserve mercy. I'm going to show you mercy when you're unfaithful. I'm going to do away with this sacrificial system. I'm going to do away with this idea that you can attain righteousness on your own and I'm just going to step in. I'm going to be the once for all sacrifice. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And I'm going to call you to me so that you would know me, so that you would be my people, so that you can be sanctified, so that you can be righteous, so that you can escape the effects of sin. 
Right? That, that's what he's saying in all of this. That's what he's saying in all of this. And so Hebrews goes on to say in verse 19, therefore. Right? We've talked about this before. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, it's talking about whatever was just said. Whatever was just said, what I'm about to say hinges on that. Right? If you could have this picture in your mind of maybe a, a volleyball game, right? And if you know anything about volleyball, it's, you know, it's bump, set, spike, right? The, the ball has been bumped, and now the ball is getting ready to be set. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us, and through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When you realize that that hinges on what was before, it becomes pretty exciting, doesn't it? There's more than a call here to just show up to the meetings of the church. This is absolutely exciting. In other words, I can, maybe I can put it this way. It says, when we understand the truth that has just been declared, the result should be this, that we would draw near to God having faith in the one who is faithful and that we would do it in the context of gospel-centered community in a local fellowship, the body of believers to which you've been called. And it's in this gospel-centered community that we should remind one another on a daily basis of the powerful truth of the gospel until the promised return of our Savior. So this isn't just saying show up to service. What, what's being said here is that there's a life. There's a life that God is calling us to. And that life to which he's calling us is that as we understand the truth of the gospel that we live it out together in the community to which he's called us. And then as we live it out together that we would continually remind one another of who Jesus is and of his once for all sacrifice, giving us hope, knowing that he's faithful, that one day he's going to come back like he said he would. Do you see how that's so much more than just showing up when the doors are open? God is calling us to a life, to a life that we would live together. <clears throat> right, so the, ball, the ball's been bumped, and now the ball has been set, and now moving on into the next Verses, there's going to be a spike, and this spike is going to be a giant volleyball coming at your face. Right? This isn't pleasant. But in verse 26, he says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That part's not so exciting, is it? And there's, there's a lot of guys that land on different places as to what's being said there. And for the sake of time, we, we just don't have time to get into all of that. And so, like I said earlier, we're just going to take this big zoomed out view of what's being said here. And so we can have these, these two paragraphs. The, the one paragraph that talks about, here's, here's how things could go if you understand the truth of the gospel. If you buy into the truth of the gospel. So that you can come to God by his grace through faith which he authors and he finishes and repent as he grants you to do so and obey the strength given to you by him with the community of believers which he established. Right? That's one way. It's one way that it can go when we buy in or the only way that it can go when we buy into the truth of the gospel. The other way that it can go when we set aside that truth of the gospel, when we reject the once for all sacrifice, Right, Proverbs uses an example of like the dog that returns to his vomit, this gross, disgusting picture. Right, when you reject the truth of the gospel, you're like that dog that keeps going back to the pile of his own vomit. You continue in your sin. Right, well, there's an expectation that can come along with continuing in your sin, and that expectation is that you're going to fall into the hands of God. And it talks about vengeance, and it talks about fire, right? Things that we don't like to talk about. There's two times in Scripture where falling into the hands of God is used. And, and, and I find this to be very interesting. One is here, but the other time that that phrase, fall into the hand of God, is used, it's in Second Samuel. And um, again, for the sake of time, we'll get into the whole story. But, but David sinned. Right in Second Samuel, it's towards the end of the end of the book. David sinned, and he's facing the penalty of his sin. And I'll just pick it up in verse twenty-five, chapter twenty-five, in verse ten. He says, "And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly." And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying. Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? So David's got these three things in front of him as, as a consequence for his sin. You can have pestilence, you can have famine, or you can be on the run. Glad I don't have to make that choice. But this, this is really profound to me. He says, now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. So we see these two times that the hand of the Lord is mentioned. Once in Hebrews where it's not a good thing to fall into the hand of the Lord. And here in 2 Samuel, where we see it's the only thing that makes sense to fall into the hand of the Lord. 
And so we see this simultaneous mercy and judgment in the hand of the Lord, right? We don't like to talk about the judgment of God, right? We like to talk about God's mercy. We like to talk about his grace. We like to talk about how much God loves us. And we like to talk about the benefits of following God, but we don't like to talk about the judgment. We don't like to talk about that God will have vengeance as we just read. We don't like to talk about that for some falling into the hand of the Lord is not a good thing. We don't like to talk about it. I don't like to talk about it. But here's, here's the reality is that those things are true, that, that God will judge, that God will have his vengeance. And this dividing line of the gospel says you can be on one side of the line and you can live the way that God calls you to live. You can live the life that he's called you to. You can live the life of being in gospel-centered community. You can live the life of letting the truth of the gospel take root in you. You can live the life realizing that I can't attain my own righteousness. Or you can be on the other side of the line and you can say, you know what? I'm going to keep trying to attain my own righteousness. I kind of like what I got going now. I like my sin. Right? Let's be real. We like our sin. If we didn't like it, we wouldn't do it. I like my sin. I love it sometimes. And there's this line in the sand that says be on one side of the line or the other because you can't be in the middle. And if you deliberately fall on the side of the line that says I love my sin, I'm chasing the shadow, not the substance. We just read that you're going to fall into the hand of God and it's not going to be a good thing. Now, What's not being said here, I just want to briefly mention this. Right? We battle with sin our whole lives. There's never going to be a day as long as I have breath in my lungs that I don't battle sin. Right? And that's not what's being talked about here. Right? I don't want anybody to leave from here thinking, gosh, I, I battle sin. Am I going to fall into the hands of, of God and into his vengeance? Right? That's, that's not what's being talked about here. Just our, our battle with sin. What's being talked about is this deliberate, I'm going to choose sin. When it comes down to it, I'm choosing deliberately to chase after the shadow, not the substance. Right? A lot we could say there, a lot we could get into, and time just isn't going to permit us to do that tonight. Moving on, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, that you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So again, we see this contrast, right? Savor God or shrink back. It's one or the other. It's not both, right? That dividing line, there it is again. Which side of the line are you going to savor God? You know, follow God, or are you going to shrink back? Right? And it speaks of God not taking pleasure in those who shrink back. And matter of fact, those who shrink back will be destroyed. Here's the difference in those two, two times mentioning the hand of God falling into the hand of the Lord. When we savor God, it's a good thing to fall into the hand of the Lord because we get to experience his mercy. Right? But if we are of those who shrink back, falling into the hand of the Lord leads to judgment. Right? That dividing line there again. And so it's going to end for all of us one way or the other. There's no other options. There's no choice number three. It's not there. It's choice A, choice B. Fall into the hands of the Lord and experience his mercy. Fall into the hands of the Lord and experience his judgment. And the thing that makes all the difference in the world <clears throat> is the truth of the gospel. Right? That's why he spends the first half of the chapter outlining the gospel. Right? Everything hinges on your buying into or not buying into the gospel. If you buy into the gospel, get the merciful hand of the Lord. If you don't buy into the gospel, you get the vengeful hand of the Lord. But for those who savor God, for those who buy into the truth of the gospel, there's a life that God calls us to, and, and I've I've read this a ton before, so you guys are probably familiar with it. But 1 Peter tells us this in chapter 2. It says, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Right? That's our identity. And then he goes on to talk about our purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he goes on to say, once... You were not a people, but now you're God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. I, I hope in all of this, like I hope there's this picture that's in your mind right now that's, that's pretty incredible. And if I could wrap it up here, uh, Kendra, you guys can come on up. If I could wrap it up here with, with anything, it would be this reminder to not chase the substance, not chase the shadow, sorry, but to chase the substance. Because we spend a lot of time chasing the shadows. We spend a lot of time in the shadows. We miss out on what the real substance is. The substance is Jesus. We know that. Right? All of that that we read tonight, I was purposefully trying to paint a picture of all of these statements of 
Jesus saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Right? Nowhere in there do we say you're going to do anything except that, that we just get to be God's people. That's our part, is to simply be. His part is to say, here's this covenant, and I'm going to do every part of it. Right? Have you ever, you ever signed a one-sided contract? They, they don't exist, except right here. Chase the substance, not the shadow. And the way that we know the substance is to buy into the gospel, to buy into the message of the gospel, to believe, which even God gives us that, right? God gives us faith, right? To repent, to believe, and to obey. That's, that's simply, simply put. That's how we chase the substance. Repent, believe, obey. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, thankful again for tonight and thankful for your word. God, thankful that this whole thing doesn't hinge on us. God, thankful that it doesn't hinge on our faithfulness because we're not faithful. Thankful, God, that this doesn't hinge upon our righteousness because we're not righteous. Thankful that none of this hinges upon our own ability to sanctify ourselves because we're not holy. God, what an incredible thing it is that, that you would bring this second covenant, this better covenant, and God, that you would fulfill every part of it. God, tonight, just let the truth of that part of your word sink into our minds, take root in our hearts, God, and let that truth of your word dictate the way that we live. God, show us continually the difference between the shadow and the You've been listening to the teaching ministry at Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon, 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.